Close your eyes, Josh. Take a deep breath and relax. Focus on the spot in the center of your forehead. The universe is deathless. Is deathless because having no finite self, it stays infinite. A sound man, by not advancing himself, stays the further ahead of himself. Welcome to Now Playing's Insidious Retrospective Series. There's something wrong with this place. I'm not imagining it. I can feel it. It's, it's like a sickness. Hosted by Stuart. He sees things no living person is supposed to see. Arnie. This is nothing like being dead. I know. And Marjorie. Well, the universe picked a fight with the wrong chick. I'm not sure if you're ready to hear this yet, but unfortunately, I can't waste any time easing you into it. This movie review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. That's fine, gentlemen. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're discussing Insidious, The Last Key. Starring Lynn Shay, Angus Sampson, Lee Winnell, Josh Stewart, Caitlin Gerard, directed by Abin Robitel. Help me! This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. No, senor. It's Inkedius. This is Stewart. And this is Marjorie. Inkedius? Yeah, you know, the last key. I thought you were looking at the red letters again, because you always look at the red letters. I did, now they have a little icon, an emoji, if you will, in one of the eyes, it's a key. So, yeah, they're <laughs> always playing with this one. Insidious. I gotta say, I couldn't remember when Insidious 3 came out. When it came time, beginning of the year, what do we got on our plate? Huh. I don't remember this franchise. It feels like a long time ago that we were dealing with Quinn and her broken legs, doesn't it? It does seem like a long time ago, but... I also think it seems like it was just the other day because for me, the Insidious and Conjuring franchises kind of like have this weird blurred line because kind of similar subject matter, but then they share a lot of names. There are some similarities that make that connection easy to understand. There's four of each and James Wan created two of them. They both have Patrick Wilson. Yeah, I get it. And there's Lorraine in both of them, but different Lorraines. The names are the same. There's a Warren, which is the dog. Oh, the dog Insidious. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Okay. So it kind of like just blends together for me in my mind. I kept calling it the injuring. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you just called it that because you didn't like them. Well, that too, but (laughs) spoiler alert. But it just seems like in my head, I'm like, wait, wait a second. That's from this movie. And then it's like, no, it's Insidious. It's not Conjuring. I think the Insidious filmmakers would love for you to make that confusion. One of the big distinguishments between them is that Insidious movies never make nearly as much as what the Conjuring movies make. Conjuring movies make over 100 million. Insidious movies usually top out at 50. But Insidious, I'll just go ahead and say it, I think it is the better series. If you're going to look at them as separate entities, while yes, I like both ghost investigators, I do think Lynn Shay has grown into her role, and I've always been a fan of Vera Farmiga, Insidious tends to be a little 
scarier. I like the first film. I gave it a recommend. And I'm going to go ahead and flip the arrow. I did a marathon. I watched all three films to remind myself what Insidious was. And I think Insidious 3 is good enough to... It's about as good as Annabelle Creation. And if I gave that movie a green arrow, I see no reason not to flip the arrow and say, yeah, two solid little ghost movies in Insidious. Whereas Conjuring, I didn't like either Conjuring movie. Annabelle 1 sucked. And Annabelle 2, I gave a pass. So it's two on Insidious' side versus one on Conjuring's side. Well, yes, you gave that Annabelle movie the only recommend in the entire Conjuring series. So if you look at our archives there, there's 11 red arrows and one standout green. Whereas if you look at Insidious... You and Marjorie both gave the first one a pass right there, beating the Conjuring's record. Mm-hmm. And I gave Insidious 2 a green arrow, and I, too, rewatched the trilogy. I also re-listened to our podcasts, and when we did number three, I'm like, hell no, I didn't go back. But enough time had passed since 2013 when in Chapter 2 came out and we started this that... I'm like, I need to remember what they are. We've done a couple of Conjuring movies since then, and I wanted to revisit them all. And that Insidious Chapter 2 is probably the green arrow you've given me the most shit about in the past five years. Yeah, I find it inexplicable. You could say no to Insidious 1 and 3, but on 2, which I think everyone agrees is the stinker, you're okay with. You're still okay with it? I still am, and I reinforce that decision because it's a slasher film. The ghost shit is kind of in the background, and it is, as we said to those podcasts, a Shining ripoff. And I love The Shining, and this is not a terrible Shining ripoff. No, 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 wait a second, though. My biggest problem with 2 is, oh, so that's what that was about. (laughs) Oh, I loved that, though. Yeah, that whole retconning all that crap and how it's really Patrick Wilson breaking down the door and it wasn't something scary. You just invalidated the first movie. Which I didn't like anyway, so go for it. Oh, I guess that then they were making it for you, Arnie. It's the last Jedi of the Insidious series. (laughs) I get that that's more intense, if you will, that there's more sense of danger because Patrick Wilson is possessed and trying to kill his family in a, yeah, shining Jack Nicholson kind of way. It's a little bit more like the TV Shining movie to me. (laughs) But I I just found it so silly. Once they got into trying to explain things, I think this is always the danger. When you scare us with weirdness, it works. When you try to explain what the weirdness came from and what it's all about, sometimes you can completely undermine everything you were trying to build. And the way that they explain the back history of Veilhead, as you called her, I still don't think I understand it. Uh, Even watching it again, I'm like, (laughs) I'm not sure when it's the mother and when it's the adult guy in drag. And I think I should make very clear, it's not like I have strong feelings about any of these films. (laughs) I don't hate them the way I hated that first Annabelle. I don't hate this series, nor do I love this series. At best, it's always been kind of a meh or a meh. You know, so it's it's not like I love Insidious 2 and rewatch it every Halloween. I Mm -mm. like it so much. I saw it last in 2013. But 
It's just the one that I clicked with the most. I stand by Insidious Chapter 3 had it going on until the end. It was a really weak red arrow on that, but that ending just fell apart. Yeah, once you have Lin Shay doing karate, I think you've lost focus. But that was the killer for me last time. I'm going to say there's enough mood building. I mean, what you have to appreciate when you watch an Insidious movie, and probably Conjuring too, is that they're slow build. That if you're the kind of person that wants gore and in your face, grab you by the throat, I'm going to fuck your eyeballs, then this is not that horror series for you. It's not extreme by any measure. It's haunting. It is meant to be creepy and languid. And maybe that's why they gave a 70-year-old woman the franchise. That Lin Shay is running it, I think, makes a lot more sense than Jamie Lee Curtis. And I've praised the series for that direction with part three. The most interesting thing about Poltergeist was not Craig T. Nelson. You know, the fact that the ghosts followed Carol Ann all around isn't as interesting as if we'd followed Zelda Rubinstein from Haunting to Haunting. And I'm so happy. There wasn't a ton of behind-the-scenes material on this, but I did read some interviews with Lee Winnell, who's back as an actor and fourth time in a row as the writer. He directed the last one. He kind of just stepped back to writing and acting on this one. But he's even admitted that, yes, in the first movie, Lin Shay was the Zelda Rubinstein, and they've gone that direction. I think all of these Insidious movies are still the best Poltergeist sequels ever. I think it's strange that they're still making them, honestly. I mean, let us not forget that Elise died in the first film. They have to really be regretting that choice. If she was supposed to be the torch carrying on into the future, instead they've had to go back and do prequels, thus taking away some of the suspense of what could even happen, because we know it's all going to build to her death in Insidious. It's strange that they're still making these, honestly. I would have figured with Conjuring being so much more and James Wan doing that series, they would have let this go. But you're right. Lee Winnell seems to be the linchpin and Lin Shay seems to be game to keep coming back. They've held it together. This might be the first series that you need to uh, like start at the sequel and work your way through it and then do the final one. But who doesn't love Lin Shay? I mean, she's great. She's an underrated actress. But I think that they've realized they made a huge mistake because people want to see her and they want to see the trio hunt for ghosts and go on these different experiences. And they messed up royally by killing Lin Shay in the first one. And I wonder if she had lived and gone on to another adventure, these might have been a bigger hit for them. Mm-hmm. Lin Shay and her sidekicks, that's what these are all about. And I think that they missed a big thing by not making the movie having her live. And at the end of this show, we can discuss where we think the future of the franchise is. I will state, having done the rewatch and getting refamiliarized with everything inside us, that it is kind of frustrating that they left Chapter 2 on a hook with Lin Shay as a ghost hunting ghosts with Specs and Tuck. I will say it was slow going there. I honestly, when I first saw Insidious, for me, because it was so much like Poltergeist, I was with the family. That's what I cared about. Her death at the end, I was fine. I thought she was a little weird. She wasn't exactly Zelda Rubenstein. It really was Insidious 3 where I realized, hey, she's actually an asset. I guess I'm late to the party, but I did not realize that Lin Shay was so important to this series. I wouldn't have thought that 
after the first film. But now it seems obvious, which is why they built a prequel for her that Lee Winnell has written, but not directed. He is off directing some other sci-fi horror movie that's coming out later in the year called Stim. So the directing duties for this one went to kind of a relative new guy. Do you guys know Adam Robitel? He is the screenwriter of Paranormal Activity 6. And he directed a found footage movie that I watched last night because I felt like I needed to know where he came from and why he got this gig, Taking of Deborah Logan. Did you regret watching that? It's about par. I will say that I'm on record not really loving most found footage, or rather feeling like it's a gimmick at this point, and we all know how you design a found footage. I like the premise. The premise is it's a documentary film team that has come to an older woman who has Alzheimer's with the idea that they're going to track her degenerative disease and, you know, it's going to be an emotional piece about a daughter losing her mother to Alzheimer's. And what ends up happening is you find out this woman was an occultist and the more she loses her mind, the more she starts ratting out people in town that are involved in Satanism. Pretty good premise, right? Mm -hmm. Wish I could believe the execution was as good. The acting (laughs) is a little obvious and there's just so many obvious jump scares. And in the end, my problems with the found footage genre itself kind of prevent me from recommending it. But I would say if you like found footage, it's an okay attempt at one. And I can see why they might want to go in that direction and get this Adam Robotel guy on the directing job. And I just want to put a call out to our listeners to follow up on Stuart's statement he just made. If you like found footage, please let me know in the forums because I can't imagine the person who's like, yes, found footage, I'm there. (laughs) (laughs) But... This guy did show that he could build a horror movie around an elderly woman that had to be an appeal now that they know that they have Lin Shay as the star. And they're going to go back and tell her origin story. I think that this is an interesting idea. And I think this is obvious. And I'll just put it out there right now. It is my biggest compliment to this movie that this is the first Insidious film where I feel our main characters have stakes since really... I guess maybe part two when I thought Patrick Wilson might kill his whole family. Mm. The fact that we're taking our central characters and this time it's personal. We always care about a story more when the person has a reason to be there. The best they could do for part three is at least like, I don't want to go in the further. Veilhead is waiting for me. In this one, that it's about her past, her history we get to see her story. It's both obvious and genius, but Lee Winnell had a hard time. Part of the reason that it's been three years since we've covered this is Lee had a case of writer's block. He sat around like, well, what ghosts should they do next? What should they do next? And it was when he decided it should really be Elise's story, which is what he claimed about part three. I don't know what he was smoking. Perhaps that he should have been writing this about what the hell is up with the Darth Maul demon because we never really found out why he's so scary when his little tailor shop. Yeah, that one's still to come. They're keeping that one in their pocket. I wondered if that might be what this story was about. I didn't know much about Last Key going into it. I had seen one trailer, and I knew that originally it was on the calendar for October, but then Blumhouse realized they had a bigger hit on their hands if they released Happy Death Day instead, so they punted this to January, a time when you generally don't have much expectations for box office performance. That's not a good sign that they're trying their Groundhog Day horror movie over their quote-unquote proven franchise and moving their proven franchise to January. But truthfully, and this is such a rarity for me, 
If it hadn't been you, Stuart, putting it on the schedule, I wouldn't have known this movie came out. I hadn't <laughs> seen a single trailer. All the movies we covered in theaters, plus the ones I saw for fun last year, not one trailer. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've not seen a trailer for this. And I've also noticed if I go to the Fandango app and look at a movie and see when it's playing, I will then be retargeted and I will see that movie pop up and ads all over Facebook, all over the internet. It's a common marketing practice. I looked at this movie on Fandango and never once got any marketing for it. Not a single ad appeared in my feed or on my searches. Ooh, scary. They're failing in the marketing department. I subscribe to Horror Hound magazine and I pick up some other horror magazines at Barnes and Noble from time to time. Not a single ad for this movie. So I went into this movie. It actually got a little bit exciting as the last weeks came. I kept my head down and my blinders on. I'm like, I know nothing about this movie. I went in having no clue other than when I did buy our tickets on Fandango, seeing Lin Shay was on the poster. I'm like, okay, Lin Shay is back. I'm assuming, I didn't look at any of the credits, but I was assuming Specs and Tucker were back. But I knew nothing. This I was sitting there in the theater, uh, looking up at the screen, going, take me. I don't know what you're going to do. I have no expectations. That's awesome. I mean, I, I feel like I would enjoy that experience more often. These days, you've usually seen the movie if you've seen the trailer. And so how great to go in blind. I'd seen the trailer, and I knew only a little bit more than you. I knew it had a demon with keys for fingers, and I knew that it was going to end up in a prison. The shocker is, and we'll talk about it when we get into this, there's footage in the trailer that's not in this film, which leads me to believe that it has been radically retooled. Yeah, after seeing it, I then did finally see an ad pop up on Facebook, and I'm looking at this bald, noseless creature, and I just turned the <laughs> phone to Marjorie. I'm like, that wasn't in the movie, was it? <laughs> it was not. And much of this footage of the further, which is, of course, the selling point. If you're going to Insidious, you're going to that realm that looks like our world, but it has a blue light <laughs> and is filled with weird, doll-faced creatures. That's where we want to spend our time. It's very little of this movie. There's more of it in the trailer than there is in this movie. I'll just put it that way. Well, Stuart, why don't you tell us what's in this movie? Give us the plot. Elise Rainier was born with the gift to see ghosts and spirits, but she had lots of practice talking to them because she grew up next to a New Mexico prison. Her childhood home even shared the same power grid as the electric chair, so that every time someone fried on death row, the kitchen lights flickered. And Elise's drunkard father, Joe, was a guard at that prison, Presumably, he didn't like that his daughter was talking to men that he kept locked up, so he beats little Elise and locks her in his bomb shelter for punishment. There in the dark, the psychic makes contact with Keyface, a demon who runs his own private jail in the further. I need to point out, that's not just our little nickname, that's actually what's in the credits. <laughs> yes, Keyface. I didn't make that up. Veilhead we made up. Keyface we did not. He coaxes Elise to unlock the red door and let him out, and then immediately kills her mother by strangling her with electrical wire. Joe, now presumably possessed by Keyface, continues to raise Elise and her younger brother Christian, but one fateful day, the 16-year-old psychic finds a strange woman cowering in the laundry room. Joe raises his cane to beat his daughter, and Elise decides she's not going to take it anymore, runs away, and never looks back. A half-century passes, and Elise's childhood home is now owned by drunk bachelor Ted Garza, 
who reaches out to the 60-something Elise, now played by Lynn Shea, and begs her to help quell the supernatural spirits inhabiting the kid's bedroom. And although the psychic feels like this is a job she must do alone, ghost-hunting sidekick Spex, played by Lee Winnell, and Tucker, played by Angus Sampson, invite themselves along so that they can provide some comedic relief. Anna, the same ghost that Elise saw in the laundry room at 16, is still haunting the house and leads Elise down to the bomb shelter where she makes a horrifying discovery. Ted Garza has abducted a local girl and is keeping her chained in a secret room, just as Elise's father had done to Anna. In fact, when Elise first saw Anna, the girl was still alive and not yet a ghost. Ted threatens to shoot everyone to cover up his crime, but Nerdy Specs drops a heavy armoire on his head, killing him. But that isn't going to stop Keyface, who presumably plans to continue possessing and chaining up more women. The next victim is Melissa Rainier, one of two beautiful daughters of Elise's all-grown-up brother, Christian, now played by Oscar nominee Bruce Davison. He's still really mad at his sis for running away all those years ago and leaving him to the care of a bad dad, but he gets sentimental when he learns that Elise has found the whistle his mom gave him right before she died. And so he takes his two girls into the old house to dig around and find it while Elise is talking to the police. And while Melissa is snooping around the bomb shelter, Keyface puts chains around her neck and locks up her vocal cords, sending her into a comatose state. Keyface also does the same thing to Elise while she's digging up clues in the air vents, and since neither Specs nor Tucker have any legitimate supernatural abilities, and so they turn to Christian's other daughter, Imogen, a budding psychic who they put into a hypnotic state so that she can go find Elise and Melissa in Keyface's jail. Keyface baits Elise to beat her father's ghost like the old man once did her in childhood, but the psychic resists. She knows that giving in to anger is just inviting the demon into her body. And when Keyface gets Elise down on the ground, she blows on Christian's whistle and summons her mother to finish off the beast. Melissa leaves her jail cell and returns to her body, thus snapping out of the coma, and relations are patched up between Christian and Elise. Now there's nothing more for Elise to do but face her demise, which she knows will come when she answers the call to help the Parker family with comatose son Dalton bringing us back full circle to the first insidious and leaving audiences to wonder if the last key is the last time we'll see Elise as credits roll. I want to compliment this movie on one thing. I can't recall the last time I saw a 70-some-year-old woman as the star of a movie. I feel like there's a lot of British movies in which old dames kind of do cute things. Open up restaurants, are the queen. There is a, a realm for the great actress in her 70s and 80s, but they are few and far between. Judy Dench. Yes. Yeah, Judy Dench is a highly respected actress, but I've mostly seen her in supporting roles. So to think that Lynn Shay, an actress who's basically lived in the further, you know, she's around, but she's the sister of Bob Shay, head of founder of New Line Cinema. She had, you dare not call it a cameo in the first Nightmare on Elm Street. But her career, we've talked about it in the Insidious movies, all over the map, from doing hit movies like Magda and There's Something About Mary, to doing absolutely shit films like 2001 Maniacs, Field of Screams with Robert Englund and... Big Ass Spider. And she also was in this movie Dead End with Ray Wise, where they were just a family driving in a car. So the fact that... She's now leading a youth-aimed horror franchise. Kudos to this woman and her very, very long career. 
And maybe that's why they're going to call this the last key and talk about wrapping up her story and reminding you she's just about to die. And also why so much of the important part of her story is done by younger actresses. I believe this movie would be better served if we spent more time in 1953 than we do. We start the prologue there. Again, I know absolutely nothing about what we're about to see. And again, I didn't know anything. We get some titles on the screen that we're in Five Keys, New Mexico. Is that a real town? I don't know. Oh, didn't think so. Because, you know, last key and all that. Keys are such a plot point. They didn't have any tax breaks for Florida, I guess. They could have gone to the Florida <laughs> Keys. <laughs> that would have been funnier. I don't know that ghosts have ever been in nice places. But 70-year-old women are there all the time. <laughs> and then we're at a prison in 1953, a prison with oil derricks on the property. That kind of threw me for a loop. It never goes anywhere either. I have to believe that somewhere in some version of this script, a lot more was made of the fact that the prison's right there. We actually never go to that prison. That's kind of weird, right? We see inside the house on the hill that's by the prison that every time someone's on death row, they fry and it causes the lights to flicker. We know that the dad has uniforms that I think means that he works there. That's why they let him live in the complex. Otherwise, why would you raise your family right next to a maximum security prison? But I have to believe there are scenes you know, Green Mile kind of stuff where we see him condemning some of these men in the chair. See, I was kind of on the fence on that. I thought it was just used as a tool very briefly to show that she had this connection with the ghosts. And I kind of didn't expect to go there once I realized it was a flashback. And I kind of expected just more flashbacks where maybe she would suffer strange visions or feelings when people would be put to death, but I didn't expect to go to the prison and find the root of it. And I didn't see how you couldn't. If you have a prison where people are being executed and you have a little girl with a psychic link who suddenly knows the name of the prisoner, what he was convicted of, what his last meal was, what his last words were. First of all, I just wrote down in my notes immediately, little Elise, you know, a blonde girl. I was trying to be ahead of the movie and I was happy to have been. And you know, I just kind of remember the scene in Ghostbusters 2 in the courthouse where you have those brothers in their electric chairs floating around. How do you not execute a whole bunch of bad people and not have them come back? One of the frustrating points of this entire movie is that Keyface is a demon, not a ghost. And I had that problem with the first movie with Lipstick Face Demon is that demons have no origin story. Demons have no motivation. Demons just are evil for evil's sake. And that is disappointing that you don't have something with motivation. Well, they tempt you. And I think the story that was supposed to be here, which is actually said in dialogue, but not demonstrated in the actions of the characters at any point, is that, okay, so Elise can know that, oh yeah, they're putting down Wayne Fisher tonight. And if the dad, in fact, knows Wayne Fisher because he watched him on death row, he's going to be very unnerved by that. We don't know exactly why he beats her. 
I guess some of that is fear of the unknown of the psychic world or wanting his daughter not to look at evils that he has seen. It's hard to know the motivation. Again, this is why I wanted to spend more time back here because they use shorthand. He's literally wearing a wife beater. He's wearing a (laughs) white tank top and sitting in front of the TV drinking beer. Usually that's code for bad dad that beats his children. The children certainly seem very nervous about interrupting him while he's watching his propaganda about communism coming and duck and cover. I think we're supposed to think from many little clues that he's already an abuser, and yet I feel like the story they want to tell is that he didn't become possessed by Keyface until Elise unlocked the demon. Right. I think you've got that right on. He was never a good dad, but he was never a psychopath. Clearly looking at it, it is gross and deliberate child abuse, even more so locking her in the bomb shelter with no lights. Well, I actually think locking her in the bomb shelter is less cruel than making her put her hands on the wall and physically clubbing her. I mean, those scenes feel particularly brutal, the way that they're staged here. The first time it happened, he had her put her arms out, hands on the wall, and he came down with this whack, and she starts crying, of course, but I thought he broke her arm. Yeah. The way the arms were out, I thought he took a whack at one of those arms and broke a bone, but I guess it was just across the back and not hard enough to break anything, but hard enough to leave scars on her. Right. Yeah, we'll see an adult, she still carries those scars, and we'll see that on the wallpaper, she did this so often that her handprints are permanently placed on them. So it's an abusive environment for sure. And the blame anyway, whether it's really the reason why he beats his kids or not, is the fact that she continues to reach out to what I don't know. It would be helpful to know whether these are the spirits that are being executed or whether they're just random spirits at all. We're told there's a little boy that's living in their closet, but it ends up being the red-faced, lipstick-faced demon. It was that. Okay, that is such a quick shot that there's, there's a little boy we do see run across the room. Right. And... Elise goes to the closet and starts talking to that little boy. And her brother is so freaked out by the fact that there's a ghost. He goes into the bunk bed and then, boo, you know, there's scares in this movie that are accompanied with loud noises. But I want to just thank our new director for not making them as ear-piercingly loud as (laughs) the past three movies. But you just blink and you literally miss it see a demon but i did put in my notes i think that was lipstick face and lipstick face was credited so i thought that was him yeah i believe that it was him as well and i think they just throw him in here because they know we want to see him they're teasing that maybe we'll see him again we will but he is not key face he is not the demon that we will be seeing at least fight in this movie that is somewhat of a disappointment she is going to be thrown in that bomb shelter and it is there where she is tempted by a demon, she's supposed to unlock him. He wouldn't get out and he wouldn't possess the father. He, her mom wouldn't be dead. None of the bad things that are going to follow would happen if she didn't unlock that red door, is what we're told, and yet she's already being beat. I think that that is an error in the storytelling. I think that they changed something. I don't know that they necessarily changed something there, but you know what I would have liked? is the demon to offer something like unlock my door and I can stop him from hurting you or something like that. Instead, you just hear this voice that it makes a promise it doesn't keep. You're the only one who can open the door. You're more powerful than you know. I want you to help me open all the doors. 
only one door is ever opened in this movie, and it's right here at the beginning. But if you look at that trailer, at some point we are in the actual jail cell and it's full of demons and ghosts and what have you. I did see the trailer. I don't think that's the jail cell. I think that's the further yeah. where we see Elise trapped at the end of the film. But of course, the further is the real world in blue light. True. It is the real jail cell, except it is housing demons. The idea is if this little girl can talk to spirits, now the demon doesn't have to do any legwork. You go get the little boy in your bedroom and I'll throw him in cell number 62. And so on. That's the idea, is that as these people are fried, she'll talk to them and lead them down into the bomb shelter, and then Demon can just put them right back in jail. I think that that was a plot at some point. It'd be interesting to see if there was a director's cut, because there's a lot I felt that could have been done differently with that in general. Yeah, the jail is totally unneeded otherwise. You don't need to have a jail if that isn't a part of the story. And again, it's something that Keyface said to her. I can use you. I mean, there, there, he has a reason for her. There is a plan in place to use her gifts to talk to spirits. That seems like the obvious one, right? You hook them and then I lock them up. It's never built upon, which is a lost opportunity. One thing that I found very interesting in my reading of this, the script for this didn't have Keyface. It didn't have a demon. I have no idea what the central conflict of this movie was. But when Adam Robitel came in, he said to Lee Winnell, I think we need a big bad in this movie. I think we need something that we fight at the end, kind of like Man Who Can't Breathe in Part 3. Absolutely. I mean, that should be obvious. And so, with his help, they rewrote the script to include Keyface. Can you... I can't even fathom what this movie was without it. You could show that she was just being abused, and maybe that's healthier. That we, instead of attributing uh, child abuse as the work of a demon, we're looking at real-world ills and exploring things. To attribute everything to possession, I think, is bad shorthand. It's sometimes cleaner and better for the psychology of characters to show them as not possessed characters. Maybe that's the way that they went. It would have been fulfilling if it provided some sort of reconciliation with her father, like that Keyface was always somehow manipulating her father to punish her so she could have that. As it was, she only reconciled with her brother, and that felt so unfulfilling. Well, let me ask you, did the father kill the mother? I know it's this series way to kind of couch all of that in demonology. Like I talked about in Insidious 3 that I felt like they were trying to get at teenage suicide, but then they just end up making it about demons jumping out a window and they just didn't want to take it to that dark realm. Now I think they abstracted on purpose. I think we do look at Insidious 3 as a story of a teenager who may give up on life and what is going to bring her back. Here, this is the story of child abuse and wife abuse My question to you is, is this father also beating her younger brother who is not psychic? And did he lead to the death of the mother who we see die through a magical noose forming in the sky and choking her? But that just may be metaphor for he got drunk one night and killed her. I have to take this movie about ghosts at a very literal level. And I believe it was Elise unlocking Keyface that caused her mother's death. You have to believe there was an immediate consequence for this for which Elise would feel guilt, and the mother was her protector. It does not appear that 
the brother or the wife were being abused. The wife tried in her way as much as she could to stand up to the husband. A beaten wife would just sit there and cower while the daughter got beat as well. So I don't see any evidence that until Keyface was released, the father did anything other than beat Elise because he was afraid of her ghost. He didn't understand her power. Her mother did. And it frightened him, and he was afraid of having a freak for a daughter. Now, once Keyface is released and possesses him, when we see him a few years later, and Elise is 16 and her brother's older, all of a sudden the father has changed. He's walking with a limp. And my shorthand was drunkard because he has the stained shirt on and the unbuttoned shirt over it, and it's like, Aah. to me, that just says alcoholic. And we're going to see in present day... Her brother Christian says, you ran away and left me with the real monster. So I believe once infected with Keyface, yeah, everybody got beat and women were kidnapped and locked in the basements and everything. But that's a mistake. I mean, obviously we should have a radical transformation. We should have a father who didn't beat his kids. And then when the demon is released, did start beating his kids. Yeah, see, I think it's totally believable that he was beating everybody in that house. Yes. Look at their body language. Yeah. Look at the way the mom looks at him when he's sitting there watching TV. That's all triggers to let you know that this is a house of abuse, that they're all on eggshells. They're all worried about, is it going to come to us? You know, Christian just obeys. He doesn't do anything to act out. And the mom doesn't, you know, it's weird. She's going to be cast as a protector, but she really doesn't protect her daughter from getting beat. She just gives the son a whistle. Yeah, and when she comes to the basement, though, she's the one who, no matter what her husband says, she's going to go and find out why her daughter is screaming. And so she goes down there and Keyface chokes her for reasons not entirely known other than perhaps she is the protector and getting her out of the way will enable him to utilize the father better. Again, I don't like that Keyface is a demon that has no motivation. I'd rather it be a ghost that something in life it did and it wants to do more of in death. But I think the demon here, I mean, I think this is metaphor. The demon here is the cycle of violence that happens, is that a man who drinks too much and beats on his family, it will only lead to reoccurring behavior and future generations doing that as well. That's what demons represent. I mean, you want to be able to look at the story about demons and not believe in literal demons. It needs to work on a metaphorical level. That's where this movie is struggling, is that because of the way of the setup here, it's impossible to read this cleanly in the characters that they're giving us. I see you want a metaphor. I don't see this movie has a metaphor. It has a muddled metaphor, but obviously it's about a cycle of violence and chaining people to reoccurring behavior because we're going to see in the future, Keyface is still making men drink too much and do this to women. But if it was truly cycle of violence, I think it would be Christian. Yes, which is why I'm going to ding the screenplay. Because that's what they obviously meant to write, and then they decided not to write that. But let's jump to the future, because that's where Lin Shay is, and I think that's where the movie's at its best. Lin Shay, at this point, every scene that she's in, she makes it better. Agreed. She completely owns this movie. I can't believe how much I've come around to her as a character in a franchise I'm really still met on that I like her character I like her presence she 
sells me every scene from when she wakes up and we see the scars on her back. She's so human in her portrayal is what it is. I mean, she seems just like the kind lady that lives next door to you that you'd go and maybe take some cookies to or something. You know, I mean, she comes off so genuine. And she still, without even bringing it up, you see her carrying the weight from part three. The fact that her husband killed himself, the fact that she's alone and aging. And who saw this coming? Specs and Tucker live with her now and are trying to install a early version of... The Amazon Echo in her house so they can voice control the lights? Yeah, it's 2010. They make that explicit. So yeah, we wouldn't have Alexa yet. We wouldn't quite be where it's kind of a goof on modern technology. And that's what Tucker can bring here when they're clearly a burden to her. I mean, they're living in her living room. And I think she enjoys it. In some ways, it feels like she's a parent again. She has two new children, and she's going to raise them. She's trying to get them to dress better. Uh, Tucker is now, he got rid of the mohawk. It is now a mullet. (laughs) You say again, but I don't know that we know if Elise ever had kids. Oh, yeah, you're right. I don't think, I mean, they could write it different in some sequel, but you're right. I don't think that she and her husband had children by anything we've learned. She gets this call from Ted Garza, and he's in Five Keys. Somehow he's heard of her, and when she writes down the address, she's like, she won't go, and... It doesn't take her long to change her mind, though. She's like, I'm not going to go. I'm going to go to sleep. Oh, I'm going to wake the boys up in the middle of the night and tell them I'm going, but I have to go alone. Yeah, that was ridiculous. That, I mean, there was no argument, no mulling it over, no hint that she should have warned the boys or something. I don't know. No discussion. Maybe a conversation with the dice rollers from part two and three, or maybe an appearance from the ghost of her husband. There should be something that changes her mind. Yeah, it's part of character arcs that you have the rejecting the call. You know, you have someone question that, usually on page 18. They're following the formula, but what you're saying is that they don't give a good reason for why. She doesn't know this man. This Ted Garza, she didn't know that he took control of her house. She would normally be inclined to help him if it wasn't her childhood home. She's more concerned about facing her past and maybe ghosts that still live there, quite understandably, once we get into another flashback. That's where we see her at 16 make the choice to leave. And this movie did fool me. We're going to find out that the ghost she sees there isn't a ghost. Never thought it was a real woman. That was the biggest shock, I think, of any Insidious movie for me, is that the ghost was actually alive. Yep. I call shenanigans on that one. Here's the thing. I deeply suspected once she goes to New Mexico, it's, yeah, she has a moment of, I have to do it alone. And then because the boys buy a pimped out truck. Win a bay ghost. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they agree to show for her. I never think these guys are as funny as they think they are. And I love that they're not as funny as they think they are, but I laughed both times. Tucker said, she's psychic, we're sidekick. Yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't. They're not so annoying that I want them out of the film. I recognize they're doing something that's important for our mood, but I just wish they were written better. I actually thought that they would be written out. I thought maybe Lee Winnell had something else to do. When Elise said she had to go alone, I'm like, oh, they just had a cameo so that we had a little continuity. I'm glad they went along for the ride. I'm glad we see the origin of the suits. I think her husband gained and lost a lot of weight and height to have suits that fit both of them since she (laughs) says it's her husband's old clothes. (laughs) Yeah, there's no way that his suits can fit both of them. Those two do not swap wardrobes. 
But again, the point is we wouldn't want her to go alone. You want to have this jokey cloud around her to lighten the mood when things get dark. But she meets Garza. Instantly, I suspect him. I'm wondering if you guys feel the same. He is a bachelor that has moved into this giant house alone, and he's drinking in the middle of the day, and he's played by Kirk Acevedo, who was always causing problems on the 12 Monkeys TV series. I just instantly knew this guy had a dark secret. Oh, absolutely. The whole thing was shady AF. I mean, as soon as he appears on screen, you're like, yeah, something else is going on. He's either going to kidnap her and make her do something else, which would have been a really cool story to like kidnap the ghost hunters and make them get the ghost out of somebody or possession. But yeah, there was something else going on immediately. He was too jumpy. He seemed really vague. And for me, the deal was sealed when he got angry about them leaving that bedroom. All right, this movie tricked me, and it's a horrible reason why. But as a Hispanic American, I truthfully believe this was just a stereotypical portrayal of Hispanic Americans in America, that they'll buy rundown houses and just live with the furniture there and drink midday and not have a big part of the plot. Because his name was Garza, I didn't know why it wasn't something like Jose Garza instead of Ted Garza but I really just thought this was a negative portrayal of Hispanic Americans. When he turned out to be evil, I was fooled. Okay, well, I'm glad that worked for you. I Again, and I wasn't thinking he was going to be evil. I just felt like he knew more than he was sharing. I thought he was a Bible thumper. I mean, the fact that he barricaded that door to the bedroom that had all the hauntings with stacks and stacks of Bibles made me believe he was more innocent. Keep in mind that when you have, I mean, you should know as a rule, Latinos and Hispanics are very religious. Yes. Demographically speaking, are very Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that they would stack Bibles because that's the defense they have against demons or hauntings. And very few Roman Catholics would believe in chaining women up in the basement. <laughs> this would be a lot cleaner if calling out of the past was her brother, right? It's going to be really weird that we find out that that brother that she abandoned, he was like 12 years old, never left, moved out of the house and went down the street, and at the age of 70 now has beautiful teenage daughters. Yeah, we don't know exactly how old he is. I know how old Bruce Davison is. He's 71. How old is Ed Begley Jr.? Because that's who I thought this was. <laughs> I actually put in my notes, oh, Ed Begley Jr. He's turning up all over the place. And it was halfway through the movie. I went, oh, wait, no. This is the senator from X-Men. But I thought that scene was very weird where two hotties come into a diner and... Tucker and Specs start to hit on them, and then Elise gets, like, uncomfortably close to them, and I'm like, what's going on? The fact that they're her nieces, I think that that works pretty well. I like that they've brought in this. I kind of feel like they're handing the baton, like, by giving her a psychic niece who partners with her here. It's like Mutt in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, only done better. What's weird to me is Imogen does not get the spotlight in these early scenes. Everything is Melissa. Melissa, Melissa, Melissa. Melissa hugs Elise. Melissa's the one doing all the talking. So I'm like, wow, that Imogen is either a bitch or just not going to be much of this movie. So it was, again, a surprise to me when the things turn on that. Well, of course you got to give the spotlight to the big star. It's Kmart. She came back. Oh my God, from Resident Evil? Yeah. I had no idea that that was Kmart. 
<laughs> Spencer Locke. The best part of the later Resident Evil movies is that there is a woman who unironically has renamed herself Kmart in honor of the retail chain in the post-apocalyptic future. And now, yes, it's a misdirect. There are two beautiful women. They happen to be eating at their old restaurant that she ate at in childhood. And Melissa is the nice one that is very happy to meet her. And Imogene seems standoffish, not unlike her father when he comes barreling in. He hasn't forgiven her. They haven't had a conversation in 50 years. That's, I mean, that's not unusual. I know that families can have rifts like that. But it seems strange to me that Elise, being who she is, wouldn't go back and try to find Christian, particularly if he never moved away. The beef wasn't, I hate my brother and I'm leaving him. The beef was... I'm being beaten by my father and I'm going to run away. And I would think that as soon as knowledge was learned about the father, she grabs him in that flashback by the head. We have a premonition of his own death, falling dead in the shower. As soon as he died, right? I mean, you can go back. You can reestablish a line of communication. Maybe it's difficult. Maybe all I'm saying is this scene should be happening 30 years earlier. It's weird, but I was able to go with it. I mean, she ran away, so presumably they didn't know where each other were for a long time, and probably it would take till the age of the internet until they could have looked each other up, and by he then... He never left, though. I mean, he has literally moved down the block. He left the prison. I don't even know if the prison's still operating anymore. Wouldn't it make more sense if the father died and he inherited it, and then he noticed the spectral things happening again and reached out to her and that this is opening up the line of communication. Do we really need Ted Garza is, I guess, my question, if this is the backstory. I like where your head is at, Stuart. I really do. I think that would be a much stronger movie. I'd like it even more if maybe we didn't realize it was her brother and maybe she didn't realize it was her brother for a little while and that could be a twist in the movie and all of that and she could save her brother from being possessed by the demon through an exorcism. I like all of that more than what we've got. It's not what we got. Because they're establishing a cycle of violence. And so it would make sense that Keyface, after he was done with their father, would move on to Christian. You're right. I can't argue with you. It's just not the movie. That's not the movie we have. So everything you're saying is better. None of it is necessarily relevant because it's not here. Yeah, I just feel like at some point in the screenwriting phase, someone gave a studio note and said, I don't like seeing Elise's brother become a child abuser. We need to come up with something else. And thus... Ted Garza was born, and we have sort of him awkwardly inserted here. I'd love it if it was a studio note. I just think after four movies, Lee Winnell is not that gifted a writer. He's okay. He's not bad. He's not terrible. But he's not the one who's going to make those leaps. I feel, especially since he had writer's block, this is his vision. I don't see Blumhouse going like, no, you can have the father try to kill the kids in part two, but you can't have an evil old man brother in part four. I thought he saw a poltergeist and said, I can do that. And he is competent. And I don't think you have to be a genius to be able to see that, hey, we could show the demons of child abuse and wife abuse. We can see how that follows the generational lines. But you're right. It's not the movie we have. The movie we have is Ted Garza saying, take my red Bible, which actually ends up meaning nothing, and <laughs> spend the night in the child's room, which we're supposed to think that maybe the dead father is there still beating ghost children? I mean, what is he seeing? We're told that he's hearing screaming in the children's room, and we know that that's where Elise was beat. 
Yeah, this is where the movie went off the rails for me a little bit. Like, this whole subset of the plot, like you guys talked about having the brother be the Garza character and beating the kids. This whole thing, I didn't care for it. I found it a little puzzling at times to kind of keep track. And it also didn't help that everything was filmed in that damn low light. And you couldn't tell a lot of times who the faces were or until they got real close up to the screen. But so many of these things, like these strings were picked up and so many were dropped when it got to this point. I actually enjoyed what happened in this part of the movie where she's doing her first investigation. She's in the room. We know that room to have been where we saw the little boy. We hear the knocking. She goes down to the basement. I'm actively liking all of this and it gets better they do it twice they do once before the diner it's the first night of her investigation the second night of her investigation where the camera that tucker is watching from in the car is seeing a woman but elise can't see and she's reaching her hand out and i'm like oh my god is she gonna touch her and then the ghost jumps to the side and goes help her that worked for me i'm like help who well it's usually help me help her what is that this part of the movie was actively working for me yeah i agree with that i think that it was working for the audience we all three saw this at the same showing it was opening night thursday you know it's a small theater but packed and i could sense the audience was really keyed up in these moments this is what <laughs> unintended it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> but i guess it works this was why you go with this director i mean so much of that taking of Deborah Logan movie was hovering in the dark and do I see a silhouette outside the window? What's going on here? This is found footage tropes here as we see Elise with a camera, you know, a GoPro on her going down in the basement and maybe that's a woman or maybe that's just a gas mask hanging up in the bomb shelter. That was a missed opportunity. I did see the gas mask in the bomb shelter. I thought we'd see the origin of that elephant trunk she put on in that first movie that's never come back again. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, she's done a lot of psychic reading since then, and never once did she put on a silly Dr. Satan mask. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I agree with you. It's intriguing to know that, A, this ghost that she saw at 16 is still there, but she doesn't want help. What ghost isn't wanting help 50 years later? But she doesn't want help. She wants to help her. I think she's saying help Elise. She grabs the whistle, which I think this is hysterical. Those children were made to scrub every floor every day of the week, and he never found the whistle that he dropped the one night the red-faced demon was in his bed. Somehow it got caught on the springs under his mattress? Yeah, I don't know how that happened. That seems... Again, this is one of those strings that they just went boop and dropped it. Hey, it's a ghost movie. Maybe a ghost kept the whistle until Elise came back. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It was in the further. But yes, this ghost takes, I'm like, she just got that whistle back. But it did get me when she gets into the bomb shelter, which I didn't know for half the movie it was a bomb shelter. I thought it was the basement. Well, he watches like nuclear war. This is what you do. Duck and cover kind of stuff. So I picked up on it from the flashback scenes of what the dad was watching on TV. He is a survivalist. He believes the end is near. Again, we needed so many more scenes. Of the I feel like this movie would be better if half of it was in the 50s and half of it was in present day. Because it ends up being a whole lot more of the Lin Shea world than we need. Yeah, it almost could be 
Lin Shay walking through the further seeing the past like we had in, I think, part one and two. Because I want Lin Shay in this movie. When you say half the movie in the past, I don't want half this movie without Lin Shay. I get that. And I think that's one reason why you don't do it. And, you know, she's the star. You get the star in the movie earlier. But I think the story is mostly in the past. To understand all these details is to have spent more time in her childhood than they do. I, honestly, you know, they did it with Annabelle Creation. You could make a movie about young children in the past experiencing a spooky thing and having it work. It just, yes, we would miss Lin Shay. And having her fix her past before she faces her mortality is a nice closing moment for her. Yeah, I agree. And they totally got me with the girl not being a ghost. When we see this girl and she looks like out of the ring or whatever. The hair's over her face. She's bent over. You almost expect the stuttery movement. But I noticed something that was different. I noticed this giant chain, like almost a WWF kind of prop that was hanging from her neck. And I'm like, is this ghost a prisoner of key face? Why is there this chain? And it was just in the background, in frame, but I noticed the chain, and then when I saw the collar, I'm like, okay, Keyface is keeping ghosts as prisoners, which I actually was right, but I was just ahead of the movie by an hour, and no, it's a real girl, and Garza is keeping them as prisoners. Yeah, we'll find out her name's Mara Jennings, she was a local girl from another neighboring town, she's been missing four months, and the ghost activity has been going on in this house for three months. So a month into him, Keyface, operating through Garza, taking this girl, this was retaliation. Anna, the ghost, was living there silently and decided to speak out, blow the whistle literally, and get Elise to expose what Keyface is continuing to make drunk men do. I think Keyface makes them drink, too. Or maybe the fact that they're possessed makes them drink to deal with it or something. But I get the feeling that maybe Garza was a perfectly normal person until Keyface got involved. That's implied. I agree. I don't necessarily know if I agree with the drinking that Keyface is making them do that. It could just be Garza drank anyway, and this is how he copes. And I would think that Elise's father being a prison guard, I imagine that there's a high number of those people who do have alcohol problems due to what they deal with on an everyday basis. Especially dealing with death row. I worked on a documentary about death row, and a lot of times those people had real problems with what they had to do. But substance abuse, you know, Poltergeist 2 did it. It's an easy shorthand to say that that's how demons can get you. If you're drinking, you're more susceptible to, you know, evil thoughts being placed in your head. We'll never know because Ted Garza is a thinly defined character and it doesn't matter because he, he gets no questioning because Nerdy Little Specs is going to kill him. That was a surprise. Yeah, I was shocked at that. I didn't think that it would be... Like that, I bloody. Yeah, I expected him to cave. Also, to be honest, I expected Specs to not be able to do anything because they both seem to be inadequate. Lee Winnell's writing this and playing Specs, so he gives himself the hero moment. Yes, Tucker gave Specs a pair of light up glasses, and I really like. I wrote in my notes, "Oh, it's Chekhov's glasses," thinking those would come into play at the end of the movie and just before the scene we see him playing by turning them on and off I'm like they're drawing our attention to the glasses they're drawing our attention to the glasses I don't think those glasses have adequate payoff in that he just puts them on one of those liquid bird things that tilts back and forth as a distraction 
Yeah, it's a drinking bird. It's I used to have one. Essentially, yeah, you, you put a glass of water in it and it allows it to move. It's just a novelty item. It's kind of like a magic eight ball. Yeah, there was one in Dark Man. That was where I always equate him. But yeah, it was surprising to me that he hits Garza once and that's not enough. And so he beams him over the head and then just to be sure, drops this heavy armor on him. I'm like, okay, I think you got him. And then when the puddle of blood comes out, it's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, that was a surprise. This movie is relatively bloodless. But when the violence happens in this movie, it is, it feels like R-rated violence, even though this is a PG-13 movie. Seeing a child beat or seeing this armoire crush a man's head feels a little bit more than you normally get. And so that should be the end of it. You know, that's the cops show up, they have some questions, but they're more or less satisfied to thinking there's nothing more to see here, right? So what is the concern? Who would Keyface possess next i feel like it's a mistake of this movie that he does not go after christian i agree it would make sense because christian goes to the house next he wants that damn whistle because elise gave melissa a picture of the whistle so he goes there with melissa and Keyface attacks melissa in the basement and again in a sequence that I can't say I was scared or that it made me jump, but I like the design of it in that she's going around the basement. We know something's down there. The towel moves. I'm like, it's not a rat. She moves it up and there's the hand with the keys. And I found it actually disturbing the way Keyface, and he did this to Elise too, when she was a girl jumps on top of them and puts that key in their throat and like somehow locks their voice box. Yeah, it's used heavily in the trailer. It feels like sexual assault, right? I mean, it feels like thinly, the lock and key. I mean, this is oftentimes a metaphor for sex itself. The oil pumps, there are sexual imagery, even though it's never implied that the father molested his children. I think you could read that into there because of the way some of this imagery works here. And yes, this scene feels R-rated. It feels uh, skeevy because it has a sexual connotation. The shot itself, we see her heaving breast in the foreground as this spidery thing is crawling to her. I did get the sexual overtones, especially when, you're right, Keyface jumps on her and straddles her, and then we get the breasts heaving, and he's silencing her. And I, it's very much a metaphor for what's going on in Hollywood right now. Sure, yeah. I mean, it definitely it works in that. It feels topical in if no other way that here are women being silenced for trying to literally speak out about sexual assault. And I always assumed there was sexual assault with the female prisoners. I never thought it of Elise. I thought that was physical abuse, not sexual abuse. But if you're keeping a woman chained up in the basement... Yeah, that's where I was going to go. I mean, I can't think of a single reason that you want to keep somebody chained up somewhere other than you want to sexually abuse them. Right, yeah. Or you create this fantasy. The movie Room, not The Room, but Room a few years ago with Brie Larson was about creating a surrogate family. That it, The psycho in his mind created a wife and son by kidnapping them. But yes, again, all things to explore, but this movie doesn't. And it is a frustration of this film is that it's couching everything and these metaphors and these half-explained psychologies for the attackers. And now I really feel like this was stuff that they threw in just to give Elise more to do. She's suddenly crawling around the air vents, finding suitcases for previous victims. Kidnapped by who? I'm not even sure. I thought that it was her father. The father killed the first girl that we thought was a ghost girl. We see in the flashback it was real. Anna, he goes back and just beats her to death. 
And then he put her skull in a suitcase, kidnapped someone else. Now, we never find out what happened to the father, though, do we? Yeah, we saw him die, if it's to be believed. We saw 16-year-old Elise put her hands on his head and give him the image of his own death, that he is in the bathroom and he just has a heart attack or something and pulls on the shower curtain and falls to the ground. To me, that felt like that would have happened with the way the actor looked in that scene and as he did to the 16-year-old girl only 10 years later. So if it's 50 years later and so many other women have been attacked, it wasn't all done by Joe. I thought it was, and he only kept him a few months at a time. So even if it was 10 years later, I think it could have been him. There seemed to be six cases in that ductwork. And I thought they were setting us up for a jump scare, the way Elise would look in one of those cases and then immediately close it and flash the flashlight behind the case and everything. I thought it was a good misdirect. I thought something was coming up from behind the case and instead it came from behind Elise. Yeah, this director has studied horror movies, knows what you anticipate, and does something a little different, and I think he's to be credited. I also think he just lets things go on too long. I think this movie is an hour and 42 minutes, and it would do better to be about 12 minutes shorter. There were just times where I felt like, let's get on with it. I get that you can create a mood, and that's great, but right now we don't need to be crawling around in air vents. We need to be finding out what happened to Melissa and trying to rescue her. I I really think that scene with our suitcases could have been more impactful to see some sort of like escalating terror and horror on the part of Elise that as she's uncovering that her father was not just a monster to her yeah. but a monster to others it just it's felt so calm and she's like she's going through somebody's suitcase just very anticlimactic I thought it, I felt she it should have been a little bit more like oh my god oh my god we're uncovering so much more you know what I mean? it just felt so empty good point yeah if you're right if we were learning this earlier in the story let's say she found this before she knew what was going on before she found the girl in the secret room. I mean, this would just build more anxiety about who was her father, what has happened. And we wouldn't have spoiled anything about a live girl being chained up in the other room by doing so earlier. But because it's coming at this point in the movie, it doesn't serve much purpose for her to be in this ductwork looking at this now. But they just make the decision to take Elise out as well. Because, yeah, they're grooming a new Elise. I think that if the future goes forward, we know that Tucker and Specs have a crush on Imogen. Why not have her be the young, hot psychic that can go into the further and save her aunt and her sister? The hypnosis scene was kind of funny. I mean, obviously, it's Specs who has the biggest crush on Imogen. Tucker is all into Melissa. And so Specs is trying to both be the hypnotist and still kind of flirty and he's clumsy and awkward and E.T. jokes and all of that. And it's Tucker who has to step in and hypnotizes her real quick. I thought that Specs and Tucker were older guys. And maybe that's why their jokes are falling flat. And it added a creepiness element to it, which I'm sure that they didn't mean to do. But... I always felt that they were like in their 30s or 40s and that now they're hitting on these like what late teen girls. I agree. There was just something not cute about seeing them go after. I don't know how old K Martin the other one are supposed to be though. <laughs> I mean, again, if you look at Christian, he is 60 or 70 years old. Not to say that men can't have 20-year-old children at that age, but it begs a story that we aren't told. The two sisters in real life are 26 and 29, and in real life, 
Tucker and Specs are 39 and 40. So I don't think it's that creepy. If they were high school, that's creepy. Okay, but I thought that they were played younger. Yes. Given that their dad was very protective of them, and they seemed to be very much like focused on their dad, and the dad was worried about them. Here's what I would say. At one point, Imogen says, at least you got out of this town. That, to me, says they're still minors. They're still having to stay there because their dad is raising them, and they're not 18 yet. Yeah. I don't know how to read it. I read them as 20-something, and still perhaps living with their father. I mean, that's not uncommon among that generation now to still be living at home. Yeah, you could still be forced to not leave the town you want to at 20, 30, hell, even 44. Yes, indeed. So, I didn't find it too creepy. Maybe it's because they're close to my age and these two girls are hot. But I did like the hypnosis scene. And then, you know, I've been going with this movie the whole time. And I'm sitting there and every so often I'm pinging myself and I'm like, you know, this is a recommend. I'm liking this movie. I'm having fun. I think it's really ingenious that they made it a personal story for Elise. We have stakes. We have history. We have everything going for it. Let's go to the further now and find out about Keyface. And this ending just sucks. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It isn't the ending. We know. Look at that trailer and you know there was a lot more ghostly going on. Obviously, we want to spend time there. I mean, that is the appeal. Sorry, Lynchay, but the real appeal of this series is to be able to go into a spectral world where ghosts relive crimes that made them ghosts. That's what we want to see. I, maybe Keyface doesn't have a backstory, but all the people that he's chained up and what he plans to do with it, we needed to go to the real prison and we needed to go to his prison and make parallels, draw conclusions that this story does not because it is a hodgepodge of different ideas. I thought that this ending was so anticlimactic and dull that it was a MacGuffin and there was going to be another big one. Like when she got home, she was going to open the door and he'd be waiting for her or something like that. This just felt like how they have the pre-endings to movies where you think you're like, oh, it's done. We can all relax. Everyone's fine now. You mean like the end of Poltergeist where Joe Beth William takes the bath? Yes! <laughs> That's yeah. true. It The fact that Imogen comes in there and is led by Anna partway to the red door, and Elise is going to say something like, it's when she was helping Quinn, she went through a red door and re-energized Keyface. So something she did in part three is causing part four. So I have a question, because are there just common knowledge about demons that we don't need this backstory and that's why we didn't get it because I do feel that Keyface was really underdeveloped as far as a character in the movie. I don't know if like he has any motivations like you know how spirits will be trying to get back or they're trying to right a wrong or something like that. Yeah, ghosts want to work through things that happen to them in life. Demons, I believe, want souls. I think it's that basic. I think it's fundamentalist. If you give in to sin, a demon will own your soul and then you'll burn in hell. So the idea is you just don't want to let a demon in. It's not to look at it through the perspective of a demon. A demon has no perspective. It's evil. It's that cut and dry. But you as a character have to look at your behavior 
behavior and say, what am I doing that could tempt a demon to take possession of me? And so we have all of this moralizing here about who was at fault for all of the abuse. That Elise picks up the rod and almost wants to beat her father, but then she would be perpetuating the same cycle of violence that was done to her. She's the better person for setting that rod down and not doing that and thus defeating the demon. But she does beat him a few times before. I mean, Oh, yeah, we have to see her get a few licks in. I mean, the audience needs that. We have bloodlust. We need to see this bad character go down. But yes, you can always make the case that we're all victims to our personal failings. You know, people. it's not always a popular opinion. Sometimes you want to say that's a bad person and they deserve the death penalty. But I think that when you look at circumstantial reasons, what leads people to do what they do, there's always a reason, right? There's always a reason why. And so, again, they're trying to find those moments that people accept the demon in and then want to give very sunny, positive portrayals of people that can high-mindedly say, I'm not going to do that. I think I'd like this Insidious series a whole lot better if it wasn't always so wrapping up as a storybook after-school special, you know, of just like... I'm not going to give in to demons and I'm going to do the right thing. It feels like Sunday school, honestly, when I wish that maybe some characters don't get saved. You know, maybe some bad things do happen. Maybe Melissa doesn't get rescued. I mean, I think we oftentimes recognize horror movies for having downbeat endings that really startle us. I don't think Insidious is ever going to give us an ending like that. They are going to end it with people hugging. Yeah, the worst part of this entire movie to me is Elise blows that whistle. She can't talk because the key's been in her throat. But when she blows that whistle and the spirit of her mother comes in and with one slap of a lantern banishes Keyface, what the hell? It's revisionist cheesy history. I mean, the fact of the matter is that mother did not protect those children. Elise was definitely beat, and I think we're meant to understand that Christian got beat, too, when he did the wrong thing. I took it to believe that also the mother was beat yes. as well, which is why she didn't rescue Elise. Right, exactly. And I'm, again, I'm not trying to assign blame, but, you know, they're trying to give us a tidy ending here where, you know, good is vanquished and all that. I'm like, these are complicated issues, but I'm not willing to say that the mother that co-signed to the child abuse and the wife abuse is going to come running when you blow a whistle. The way I took it was, if you blow the whistle, mom will protect. Which is a fanciful notion. I just want to put it out there that that, to me, shows why this series is naive. And if the son had had the whistle all those years, could the ghost of the mother have protected him from the father? Or key face, because he was trying to possess him. But, oh, that's right, they didn't do that. <laughs> but... The way it goes, I'm just really left unsatisfied with this movie's villain. I couldn't believe how unfulfilling this ending entirely was. I mean, I knew there was no danger to Elise. It's the problem of a prequel that you know these characters will live. And I figured nothing was going to happen to Melissa or Imogen. I mean, the mom got her redemption moment. So did the dad when the dad took the one blow from Keyface. But the problem was, is we were not emotionally attached to the mother character because Elise wasn't in the movie. We didn't get that sense of her missing her mother terribly or her mother always being her protector. She talks to her mother and says, I don't have the words. This moment would have had so much more 
impact had her mother done more than just sit and watch in the very first part of the movie. Yeah, again, you needed more of the... You needed more of the 50s. And if we saw Elise blaming herself for her mother's death, mm -hmm. I opened that door. I've lived with this guilt. I think she does say it. But again, it's a difference between a line of dialogue and having it come through in the story. And I think because of the muddled things we're identifying with motivation and what happened and who got hit when, it's hard to read this story in those kinds of subtextual ways. It certainly is not emotionally satisfying to see, yeah, this woman come back and with with a one big karate chop knock the demon away. And then there's some false forced ticking clock as they have to race to get Melissa to her body. She's convulsing back in the hospital and, oh, they go through the wrong door and, hey, there's Dalton taking a fall off that ladder again. I thought this was actually kind of neat. It, it's actually kind of what I'm requesting. I'm saying I wish this wasn't all a happy ending. And here, this is a reminder. Oh, that's right. It's coming. Elise is becoming a, a more forgiving person. She's going to, you know, put aside the grievances she has with her father and reestablish a contact with her mother. She's going to make amends with her brother, but she's going to die and she's going to die very, very soon. And so I think it's important to have that perspective, that mortality perspective of it's not a happy ending, that Dalton's family is going to be calling her at the in the last scene of this movie tells me that, yeah, this is all within a matter of months. From going from Quinn in Insidious 3 to her death in Insidious 1, she only had a couple months to put all of this together. However long it takes Tucker to grow a mohawk into a mullet. Yeah. But I'm surprised they closed the loop on Elise so tightly. I mean, when I saw how this ended, I'm like, well... That's it, then. No more living Elise stories. We've had them all because we end the movie with the call she gets for Insidious 1. It makes naming Chapter 3 a little bit confusing, as it's really Chapter 1. But yeah, we've seen the entire Elise story. And that ain't Barbara Hershey on the phone. That is a... No. That sounded like an Indian call center. I, I'll say that, honestly, <laughs> they outsourced that. The people that had no vocal inflection whatsoever. But yeah, we're meant to believe that yeah, all of this personal growth and understanding has led her to accept that she is accepting a case she knows will kill her, which is powerful. That gives it a new dimension. I certainly didn't feel that storyline when I watched Insidious, but now I will. And they teased the lipstick demon again. He was hanging outside Dalton's bedroom again. I suppose if there is another Insidious, that's the star at this point. They can at least get us back. If they don't have Lin Shay, they don't have the Parker family, they'll at least have the composer slash demon lipstick face. So, Marjorie Stewart, will you unlock a green arrow for Insidious, the last key? Marjorie. Oh, I'm so torn. There's so many problems with this movie that I felt very unfulfilled, but... On the other hand, I wouldn't say it was absolutely horrible and I'd never watch again. I don't really resent that I had to sit through it. So it's, it's this thing that, you know, there's so many dropped strings with this plot. I really like Lynn Shay. I think she's a great actress. I think she's very motherly. She's very caring. She does that well. Then she could turn around and do stuff like the landlord from Kingpin and be absolutely disgusting and foul. So... I don't even want to give it a recommend. I want to give it a mild not recommend because 
If you feel you've got to complete the series, by all means, watch it. But if you're going to start the series, I think you can just kind of back off and go watch some other good horror movies and not necessarily need to see this. It's very unfulfilling. You're going to be left with too many questions and rewatching isn't going to help and watching the other movies isn't going to help. So I'm going to go with a mild not recommend on this. Stuart? Yeah, I wish I could give it a pink arrow because red means like I don't like it. And the answer is I'm just fine on it. It is what it is. But mediocrity, ultimately, I would call a not recommend. It's hard to say, hey, do you want to see this thing that's completely mediocre? No, usually people don't. They want to see a good movie. And this is not a good movie. It has good things. Lynn Shea shows that she has star wattage. I always thought it was nepotism that put her where she was, but she has proven that she can carry this franchise, and it's a real shame that it seems like she won't be able to in the future. But she's very good here. I think this director is pretty good. He doesn't fall on cheap jump scares. He shows that he can create some mood. It, as it typically is, falls on the script to disappoint. It's really the fact that the clumsy insertion of metaphor means that I can't look at this story as a deconstruction of a cycle of violence and that it really doesn't seem to mean anything and takes a whole lot of time to say very little. So uh, while I think that if you love the Insidious series, you'd probably be okay watching it, I don't know that I could say the word I recommend that you do. It is a completely passable extension of a storyline that seems to have reached a logical conclusion. And like I said, I think that this script did a lot right. More right than wrong. Yes, it didn't have what you wanted with great metaphors and standing for anything beyond, hey, it's a scary movie. But by bringing... Elise, front and center, taking these characters who, whether I liked the movies or not, I've lived with them for years now, and I've watched <laughs> them through three movies, so making them have stakes in a story means a lot more. This is much better than part three, where we see Elise a little bit at the beginning, and then she comes in in the middle to really take care of business. I love the concept of giving us her story. I love the scene where she reunites and realizes I have nieces. I like that she ends the movie with the statement, I thought I was afraid of dying, but what I really was afraid of dying was without having a family. And I mean, you could read that as specifically her brother and nieces, but I like to read that as also Tucker and Specs have become her family in that regard. Definitely. There's so much I do appreciate about where this script has taken the franchise. So why aren't you going to recommend it? <laughs> the problem I have that puts me on the line, I'm right where Marjorie was, where I'm like, mm, is... Can I recommend a movie with such an unfulfilling big bad? You know, I liked the fact that we had human monsters. You know, that Elise says not all monsters are demons. There can be human monsters, and Specs took care of one by dropping an armoire on him. I liked that we had humans in danger by humans, even if they were possessed humans. That's what I liked about part two as well, is when we had a possessed human causing danger. But my god, Keyface just sucks. I like the character design. I think that's a, well, it's almost Immortan Joe. But the face of Keyface is kind of cool looking. I like that he has keys. I want to know what doors he was unlocking. There's a lot of questions I have about Keyface that were left unfulfilled. But you know what? 
the thing is, if you like the Insidious movies, which I really don't, mm -hmm. I think you'll really like this one. And so that's enough for me to come down on a very, very mild recommend. Yeah, I'm kind of there too. I feel like if you made the journey, I recommended two. I had to switch on three. Originally I said no, and now I'm saying yes. Maybe I'll feel that way about this one in a couple years. It's just that ultimately this, it kind of felt inconsequential. Going back and digging into the past and for all of that it's going to do for Elise's character, I don't feel like a whole lot happened other than people dug around in the dark for a whistle. There was some death. You know, they saved the life of that nurse who was kidnapped for four months. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying. We were shown some images. We were told some things. But the story we saw that went on for an hour and 40, I mean, it wasn't a short film. I feel like we didn't see a whole lot of progression. It's getting just a you know, a weak recommend from me, but I'm I'm going to give it a pass on this one. I, I'm glad that you do. You know, oftentimes when, when people see the arrows, they stop there and they think, oh, they hated it. I don't think any of us are saying we hate it. No! I think we're all saying that it had some good things, but ultimately, maybe not great things. Still, all of them, a better movie to me than The Conjuring. Yeah, I, I agree. There isn't a Conjuring 1, Conjuring 2, or Annabelle, even Insidious 2, which I think is garbage, I think that movie is better than those movies. So, yeah, again, Insidious is winning. But if I have to rank them, I would say that it's one, three, four, two. Yeah, I would agree completely with you because two was by far the worst of the series. Best. And and, and again, <laughs> I mean, what what's interesting is, Arnie, you said you wanted to know more about Keyface. Insidious 2 is where you learn mo most about a demon. So, like, if that is what you're wanting, I get that. I just felt like their explanation. Maybe it's better we don't know about Keyface if it would have ended up looking more like the story of Veilhead. Yeah, I don't know. I'll rank them 2, 4, 3, 1. The ones you guys like best? One at the bottom? Yeah, what's wrong with you? <laughs> that doesn't even compute. But all right, it's it's your right. You can rank them how you see it. But that's really strange, Arnie. I just liked the wannabe actress in part three a whole lot more than the family in part one. Yeah, well, I get that. And I think we're going to see a part five, though. I mean, this movie outdid... The Last Jedi at the box office, it was only beaten slightly by Jumanji. It opened at almost $30 million. What? Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, that was my barometer. I was like, if they can hit their usual $50 million, then they'll find a way to go forward. But what will that look like? Will Lee Winnell and Angus Sampson come back as Specs and Tucker with a ghost Elise? Or will they be with the hot young Imogene and just kind of forget Lin Shay? I'm betting that young hot Imogene is going to hook up with Specs and Tucker. One of them. Hopefully not both. I don't want to see that. <laughs> yeah, maybe Melissa will go with the other one. He did something with Jello that I don't think quite impressed her, but who knows? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not saying like hook up like hook up. I'm saying that I could see her joining forces with them after like... This would be like technically one and a half in the timeline, but she would go looking for her aunt 
and find out she died or go to the funeral and decide that they're all going to fight ghosts together. Yeah, we could pick up from the end of part two and find out that Imogen and Melissa were left in the Winnebago's while they first went up to the door or something. I don't think they'll go without Lynn Shay. I don't. I remember them saying at part two, they never want to make an insidious movie without Lynn Shay. That's why they introduced her as a ghost in part two. And especially with this opening, 30 million with Lynn Shay in the trailers. I mean, this opened bigger than Insidious 3. I want to point out by... Eight million dollars. Yeah, I get it. And some of that had to do with lack of competition. And, you know, it's January. What else are you going to go see? But I'll say this much. And I don't want to be morbid, but Lynn Shay is 74. Not that she's going on death's door, but she may not be up to it. She may be playing a much more supporting role in the future. You know, God knows Betty White is still acting. So she could do this for 20 more years. Prove me wrong. But I think she may want to be reduced. You had the exact thought I did. My first thought was, well, Lynn Shay's getting up there. Maybe they wanted to close the loop before something happened to her. And then I realized my grandmother's 98. Yeah. And doing really well. So Lynn Shay could be making Insidiouses into 2050. Yeah, she could. She actually could. I wouldn't say that that's a bad impulse, but I suspect she will be appearing in a few scenes while other people do the real ghost hunting. And so who those people will be, I guess it's Bex and Tucker and maybe some new characters too. If they can sign on somebody that makes sense, that will be where they go next. Yeah, to me, it's all about the ghosts. It's Mm -hmm. all about the bad guys. I want them to get back to Lipstick Face. I cannot deny that each time I realize that he's just teased in these ends of the movie, we just want a full movie of him again. I agree, because again, I felt that he was just kind of dropped, and he seemed to be so menacing, and then he's just gone. And he just shows up to like scare the hell out of you every once in a while, like to appear behind somebody, and then he disappears. I feel like we need to defeat him to complete this series, because he was the one who started it. Admittedly, Darth Maul dropped out of Phantom Menace and never came back. Maybe that is what they're continuing the tradition of. But that is a storyline yet to be completed. And so there's the thread to pick up on for Chapter 5 when they do it. Agreed. They can only tease this out so far, right? And it's been seven years since the first Insidious. I think we're owed some lipstick, but... We'll find out where it goes. I just thought going in with the title The Last Key, this might be the last movie, especially with the January release. But yeah, if you look at global, Insidious, every Insidious movie globally has made $100 million or more. The first one, 97 but I'll round up on yeah, that. Yeah, sure. And this one has kept the budget, $10 million. Yeah, Blumhouse does not make expensive movies. So I think that we'll be unlocking another installment of this probably... 2021 i don't think they're gonna rush and like you said when is directing something else right and we've got other things to do as well like play a whole bunch of video games yes if you are a now playing patron of ten dollars or more this sunday you're going to get the prologue of our now playing arcade series it's not really a movie based on a video game so much as a movie made to sell you video games (laughs) so it's not part of the primary series it's kind of an easter egg add-on as we're going to review fred savage in the wizard 
I can just hear the deafening huh that every millennial is saying right now. Like, all right, if you're our age, you know what this was. You know who Fred Savage is. You know about the Nintendo Power Glove. Super Mario 3 is a big deal. So sorry, kids. But yes, your older brother and your dad want to relive the fantasy of 1989's The Wizard. And then we'll be going to actual video game history. Starting with the old coin-ops, we're covering a documentary that looks at people that never stop playing them, and you're going to see some of the greatest players of Donkey Kong and Galaga and Pac-Man in the world in a very entertaining documentary that will kick off the Now Playing Arcade. Yes, and in the meantime, if you follow us on Facebook, we've been playing some of these games leading up to the reviews, and I promise that before King of Kong next week... I'm going to break out on my television the arcade version of Donkey Kong and Pac-Man and start using some emulators and play some of the classic arcade versions. Are you going to get to the kill screen? I doubt it, but maybe (laughs) I beat Contra on one life. Okay. Maybe I can become the next King of Kong. (laughs) You could, but the King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters is what it's called. That kicks off our year-long exploration of movies based and adapted from video games. More than a year, actually. It's definitely going to stretch into next year. Thanks, Yui Bowl. Yeah. Meanwhile, on Friday, if more horror is your thing, Stuart, Marjorie, and I continue peeling back the layers of Jeepers Creepers with Jeepers Creepers 2. And Jeepers, it is a little creepy. I've got to say, you got to be prepared for that. Uh, do your homework. Find out a little bit about director Victor Salva. We explore everything that's going on in that very creepy trilogy. Yeah. We're covering the movies, but we're also covering the man, and we're not very apologetic for him. And finally, if you're looking for more horror, keep an eye on the site because next month we will be reviewing a movie that came out last Friday, Day of the Dead Bloodline. It's going to be a very low-key, small winter donation series. They came out with a direct-to-video Day of the Dead remake based on George Romero's 1985 original. So Jacob Stewart and I are going to be pulling our zombie series out of the grave to cover that. Yeah, Day of the Dead, actually, of all of them, is the one that I feel like you could make better by remaking. So uh, fingers crossed on that one. All the details on all of this can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. So thank you for your support of the show. It's donors who make it possible for us to do the weekly show and all the theatrical releases we're doing this year. Starting with this one, although Disaster Artist kind of was just a couple weeks late. Yep. And Marjorie Stewart, thank you for joining me. You bet. It was a pleasure. So leave this podcast. Leave this podcast! Leave this podcast now! Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You called me here, and I'm taking that as an acceptance of my readings. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Saw, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. I might need some time alone to concentrate. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. I'll get on that this afternoon. I'll have to come too. 
Support from listeners like you help Keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. What choice do I have? Gotta pay Dalton's bills. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Please help him, please. Now Playing's Insidious Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. They crave life. The chance to live again. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. It's the most important part of her process. Uh, that's debatable. It's not debatable. The Insidious films are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. And did you really believe that would help? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Why are you looking at me like that? You think I did this? Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production copyright 2018. All rights reserved and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Come on, let's get out of here. Its origins were James Wan made it and then made real money making Conjuring movies and never looked back. I thought that that would have killed this franchise. Well, he actually made real, real money doing Fast and Furious, but... He earned that money, too. Oof. I wouldn't want to be on that set. But we have one of each this month, right? Don't we have a Conjuring movie with Ed and Lorraine Warren and something about Liam Neeson on a train? (laughs) The commuter? Yeah. (laughs) I see Patrick Wilson at Vera Farmiga there. I'm like, oh boy, there's a ghost. I'm grateful I don't have to watch that. I consider that the annual January action movie with Liam Neeson in it that I always ignore. It's Taken 4. Yeah, Taken 20, I think. Yeah. Taken 4, a ride. (laughs) Specs and Tucker? Yeah. I keep wanting to call them Specker and Tux. <laughs> I think people want to see the trio. Where Lynn Shea was a ghost hunting ghosts with Spencer. With Spencer and... See? <laughs> Spencer and Sucks. <laughs> That's what I almost said. <laughs> Their names are not good. <laughs> with Lynn Shea as a ghost hunting ghosts with Spencer and Tux. That is not say- it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say once you get it right saying what you're trying to say. With Lin Shay as a ghost hunting ghosts with Spock. Spex and Tucker. <laughs> Just going to about with the other two. How about that? That's why I kept going into the trio and not mentioning their names. Spectral sightings. It is like a big tongue twister. <laughs> it is. Uh, with Lin Shay as a ghost hunting ghosts with Spex and Tucker. Hey, I did it. You did. And a uh, golf clap for you. But not Imogen Poots, right? No. (laughs) Poots. Yeah, she had to change her name. And when Keefe... And when... uh, Keefe's. And when... Feces? Yeah, it's coming that way. Who saw this coming? Tecker and... (laughs) Who saw this coming? I can't say their names. Tecker and Specs. But wait a second. I I don't understand your rationale there, but that's something I'm going to have to live with as your wife. But... (laughs) 
You know, they did it with Annabelle Creation. You could make a movie about young children in the past experiencing a spooky thing and having it work. It just, yes, we would miss Lin Shea. The single best example of this I can cite, we've never covered it, Ouija Origin of Evil. That's the best? Really great movie. A great movie? Yeah, I liked that movie a lot. You piqued my interest. Yeah, me too now. Seriously, Ouija 1 was utter shit. Ouija 2, possibly the best improvement from an original to a sequel in history. Uh, Okay. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) 